Hi, and welcome to the European VC. My name is David, and as always, I'm joined by Andreas, my co-hosts. EUVC is your podcast for insights into European VC. Every other week, we bring you a fresh new perspective from a European VC champion. If you work in VC, love VC, or want to know more about VC, this is the show that will get you up close and personal with some of Europe's finest. So do follow us on your preferred podcast platform or check out our website, theeuropeanvc.com. Please keep sending over suggestions for guests and topics for future episodes. We love that. Also, if you're looking to raise an international round and need an intro to international VCs investing in Europe, do reach out to us. We are here to help. Today, we're joined by Chaso del Palacio, partner at Notion Capital, a European VC firm investing exclusively in European SaaS and enterprise tech. Notion Capital was founded in 2009 and has invested in more than 60 SaaS startups and has more than 500 million assets under management. Ichaso joined the team of SaaS entrepreneurs and operators turned investors with a truly founder-centered perspective back in 2018. Ichaso's portfolio includes the likes of ULife, a tech-driven insurance company on a mission to inspire life and turn financial products into a force for good. By harnessing the power of gamification, lifestyle medicine, and the latest behavioral science, ULife is building a new insurance model focused on risk prevention, not claims compensation. The company is transforming the company insurance benefits market by rewarding employees for healthy living, supporting mental and physical well-being, and helping foster healthier, happier, and more motivated teams. ULife has grown 10 times over the last year as the COVID-19 crisis has driven employee well-being and insurance to the top of the corporate agenda. They now insure over 200,000 lives at hundreds of companies across the UK. Ichaso's portfolio also includes the likes of Forest Admin, a developer tool to build off-the-shelf admin panels, Developers are now empowered to be the decision makers for the underlying technologies they use for their products and applications. Forest Admin is a B2D, so to developer business, and is built on a developer-first approach. And just before we start the interview, we'd like to thank Stefan Morais from Indico Capital Partners for the introduction to Ichaso. So thanks so much, Stefan. So Ichaso, after that super long introduction, <laughs> hi, <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the UVC today. How's everything? It's uh, going well. Thank you, David. Hi, Andreas. How are you? <laughs> We're doing good. Thanks, Ichaso. Ichaso, as usual, we like to kick things off on the personal side. And I know that you actually practiced classical ballet. So on that note, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions regarding ballerinas? That's like an interesting question to start. And yeah, I did dance classical ballet for over 13 years when I was younger. So definitely a structure and set up the way I behave today, right? So I'm not really sure what are the assumptions or misconceptions you are talking about, because obviously there are always lots of things written out there, but the reality is that ballerinas operate in a very, very competitive and individualistic environment, right? We work very, very hard to be a dancer. And the reality is that when there is a play, all the ballerinas within a team are trained for different roles, and until almost the last day, you don't know if you will dance or not. And in that way, they put them competing with each other. You want to improve yourself day over day and show how good you are because you want to be the first dancer, right? And so at the end of the day, your friends, when you are 10, 12 years old, your friends in the class, they are not friends anymore. They are competing with you. And until the last week, you don't get, after working for months and the last final week, you don't know whether you are going to even dance, get on a stage. 
And that's a very hard decision or news for you when you are 10, 12 years old after having danced or trained for such a long time. So it definitely trains you for the future and teaches you lots of different points for the rest of your life, which I think they are usually valuable, I would say. Would you say that the environment is as tough as you as an outsider would think it is? I do think so. Yeah. It is pretty tough. I mean, the daughter of one of my colleagues, in fact, at Notion, has been training until now at the Royal Ballet in the UK. And she's absolutely fantastic, just selected to be one of the first dancers in the Norwegian Ballet. She trains day and night, and, and she's right now 17 years old. So definitely, I would say it is very, very tough. I could imagine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so to get to know you a little better, we'd love to hear how you got into VC to begin with. It is a wonderful world that we know many of our listeners are trying to break into. So it's always interesting to hear. That's a great question. So you can't imagine how many times I get that question. What do I do to get into VC, right? My story basically came by chance. It wasn't anything planned for me, venture capital. I didn't even think about it. I'm an engineer background. As many engineers, you go to work for big uh, manufacturing firms. And I went to work for Daimler in Berlin. So I worked as an engineer there for a couple of years, but really it wasn't for me. I was really not enjoying it. So I went back to the university to do a master's in engineering and I started my PhD. And through my PhD and my research, I ended up at UC Berkeley doing the research about entrepreneurial ecosystems. And as you can imagine, in 2005, 2006, Silicon Valley was the place to understand those entrepreneurial ecosystems. So I got embedded in this entrepreneurial venture capital environment with other stakeholders in the ecosystem too, right? And I think I got the venture back at the time. And, uh, and I've been that since working with the startups or as a founder or as an investor, as an academic too in the space. So yeah, a little bit by chance, I would say. Just like many. So Chaso, what I'd now like to shift into is trying to understand better your views on product-led growth, because it's quite clear from anyone who's following you on LinkedIn that this is a passion of yours and something that you often speak to. However, we'd love to not focus on this from the perspective of founders but from the perspective of VCs. So what is Ichiasu's playbook like as a VC when it comes to investing in product-like growth companies? And what are the super important things for VCs to take away? That's a good point. Look, I think SaaS investors overall, traditionally, have been thinking about SaaS from the enterprise perspective. So if you think of the origin of Notion, which was started by three, four guys who built a couple of SaaS well, companies, internet companies in the past, one of them was SaaS. SaaS in the early days was mainly for enterprises, which means that you were going to market with a sales team, account executives, long sales cycles, procurement processes. And so the early stage or the early days, SaaS investors were really focused on those enterprise SaaS companies. Now, the reality is that the market has shifted towards having also mid-market and smaller companies using software as their main productivity tools on the cloud. It has become much more agile. So it's not anymore that they are using an Office 365 and that's the way they live, right? They do have their own tools on their verticals and for smaller companies. And so that has created a great opportunity for what we call the product-led growth companies, which are basically those companies companies that use their product as a way to engage and to sell 
to upsell, to build loyalty with their customers. So that is exactly what is product-led growth. But I would say within my team even, I am probably the most product-led growth oriented and that's a little bit the reason. The rest of the team really love the enterprise investments and they really are patient in all these long cycles of enterprises, which in fact, once you get in, it's very difficult to get you out. That is absolutely true. But uh, it is a kind of a different go-to-market strategy. So for investors, I think it has changed a little bit the mentality. And there are other investors, obviously, that in Europe who are already investing in product-led growth companies. Just, I'm going to ask a question as a complete layman. <laughs> SaaS isn't really a space that I have much exposure. <laughs> so after our first chat, I started reading and, you know, kind of also following you. So I do have some exposure, but what about product-led growth in less kind of mainstream verticals? So for example, I've had a lot of exposure to the healthcare sector and we have a lot of software as a service, basically solutions being sold directly to doctors or small clinics and whatnot. What are your comments around that? Do you care to expand a bit on that as well? My yes, yes, for sure. I think that's a good analysis. I do believe that product-led growth is more suitable for some type of companies. And I'm, I'm saying type specifically and not using the word vertical. What I mean is that I think product-led growth is much more suitable to operate in markets where there is already a high education of the buyers. It's usually a red market. It's pretty competitive in such a way that buyers know what they want, what can they look for when they try a new product and they search for it because they need it. They are used to use those tools. If you are introducing a new product category that nobody knows about, the market needs a little bit of education. In those cases, product-led growth doesn't work that way because people don't search for your solution. You need to educate them a little bit, right? Product-led growth doesn't work either in ecosystems where or in, in, in situations in which the product needs deep integrations to be useful. Or it doesn't work either in situations where it has very long time to value, which means customers need to train a tool or to have data within a tool in order to get some value out of it. You need to bring those customers to what we call this aha moment very quickly in a product-led growth. And so your question was directed to, can we use it in health? Yes, we can use it in health as far as the product that we are selling has a very easy or short time to market, a pretty low price, which in some sectors is easier than another ones, right? Because in health, for sure, there are many of those that are highly regulated, need to go through hospitals or big institutions to be bought. And maybe doctors cannot take their credit card out of their pocket and buy whatever they want and start basically moving the clinical records there because there is a lot of compliance involved. You just need to think of what is the application of the product, but I wouldn't limit it to some verticals, but rather to some type of, of situations, markets, uh, and so on. I'm going to go completely off script and kind of go to a question that we had scripted for further ahead, but I think it just pans out super well because you said, well, it's more suitable for specific types of businesses and markets. 
What about stages? How do you see the development of the venture from inception to wild success tech story and how product-led growth plays a part in there? That's very interesting because in fact, I was talking today with a colleague about that, right? Because I do believe that you can have a company in which you are selling through product-led growth and through enterprise. I do believe that. However, I do think that the transition from product-led growth To enterprise, it's much easier than from enterprise to product-led growth. And the reason is because when you build a product for product-led growth, you basically need to take into consideration some points like the onboarding process is critical. It's really, really, really critical. So it needs to be very, very quick, very short time to value. And so in such a way that many times when you build an enterprise product, you are thinking of much more integrated solution within the customers. Now, when you start with a product-led growth, you can always include capabilities that are serving much more enterprises. And not only that, requirements for enterprises because the authentication, the security, security, the data volumes in many cases that you are using in a small company are many times not sufficient to sell to enterprises. But I would say you can start building those And obviously, you would build an account executive team to take that to the market. But it is absolutely possible to build both strategies within the company. I would agree. <laughs> yeah, so though, I have a question that goes to, how should I put this? We often see startups thinking that they will growth hack through product-led growth. But then it seems a bit like the hockey stick gets too wild. What are your views on this? Well, I've seen many of those. <laughs> As you can imagine, um, Andreas, because as you said, I, I talk a lot about product-led growth. So many of these companies who have this product-led growth strategy in mind, they come to me. I do think one of the things that I've seen definitely that is pretty striking is the, the hockey stick. And the second one is those companies who come to me and they say, we are product-led growth. But hey, just in case we are calling all the leads, we are calling them and helping them getting on board, you know, and, and that is what is telling you, okay, yeah. either you don't think your product is ready to onboard your customers, basically self-serve the product, or there is something there. It's very difficult to use. You need some sort of integrations, right? So definitely I, I'm seeing those. And I think we are still in early stages in this product-led growth, learning and so on. I think many companies have succeeded in the process. And therefore, these companies that can be Zoom and Slack, and even Pipedrive in Europe and, and a couple of other ones in Europe, we create the next generation of founders of product-led growth who absolutely know what takes to build a product-led growth company, right? But definitely many people are trying it and some of them, they come very confident saying that they are already doing product-led growth. Other ones, they are like, well, we are coming to you because we don't think we are doing product-led growth yeah. and we would like to, right? Yeah. I remember I watched um, a webinar that you participated in like two or three weeks ago. I think it was in partnership with Sifted, if I'm not mistaken. About, mm -hmm. It had a funny tagline about being sassy or something like that. You said a cool quote, which was founders understand or need to understand that no churn means love. And I thought that, that was cool. And maybe I'll use that as an entry line here to uh, ask you about the resilience of product-led growth startups versus non-product-led growth startups. 
Maybe we can use COVID and, and the lockdown period as an example there. But what I'm really curious about is do investors get it? Do LPs get it? Do they get the resilience of those startups? And how do you pitch that to potential LPs in the fund? In reality, I, I usually don't pitch that to them. <laughs> but they have started to ask about it because I wrote an article maybe in May last year, which was specifically around this topic, right? It's talking about how resilient are product-led growth companies against all other, comprehending against other more traditional business models. And the reason is that product-led growth companies get embedded within their customers through a test. So you go, you try before you buy. You might try four different solutions and you choose the one you like. It is not that one account executive comes through the door and it's telling you how the other three work. You have tried the other three too. You have made your mind. If you stay with them over time, the fact that there is a crisis in the market is not going to change your mind. If you start using the product and in two weeks it's not working for you, hey, I'm done with this. I'm moving to the other one that I tried that I thought it was, in fact, worse, but it might be better, right? But the crisis is not going to change my mind. I still like that product. So that's one of the reasons. And the second reason is if you think of product-led growth, in many cases, imagine you have an organization where we are, I don't know, 250 people. I'm talking about a smallish company, right? 250 people, but you have five, 10 individuals, 20 individuals within the organization who have taken their cards out of their pockets, bought the product. So that product is really gone through expenses rather than a SaaS line, expense line within the CFO, right? And so getting rid of that is much more difficult than getting rid of a line within the CFO, who is the one looking at, hey, all of these points here, we got a cut. And those are the biggest ones, because basically it is, it is all around the company and it is invisible, they would say, right? So it's a little bit more difficult to catch. When... Uh... We've uh, first spoke, you talked about, you know, a very interesting metric for us, particularly because we're all about Europe and the fact that VC returns in Europe have now shown to be better than in the US. So great news for us in Europe. Kudos to us. What's your take on the future for uh, VC in Europe and maybe specifically the SaaS space? So I'm very optimistic when we first spoke about the podcast. I mentioned that to you because I am very, very optimistic about the European startup ecosystem. So if we think about SaaS specifically, in 2019, we had around 16 unicorns. One of them was UiPad, 5 billion at the time. If we look in 2020, we had over 25 SaaS unicorns. I'm only talking about SaaS. So we have more than 16 unicorns, but I'm talking about SaaS, specifically cloud solution. And in 2020, 10 of them were valued over 2.5 billion, 10 of the 25 that I'm mentioning, which gives you an understanding of not only the number of big companies, but also the scope of those uh, larger companies, right? And so that means to me, better returns, better growth mindset within the companies, within the teams, new entrepreneurs, building companies, looking much more towards this growth, investors becoming much more bullish 
because whenever you have already returned your fund, then you can go and be bullish and not be looking that much to the numbers, but rather focusing much more in the future and bigger opportunities, I guess, right? So I think I am all of that is positive and will only accelerate and increase and give bigger returns in the future. So yeah, I'm very, very optimistic about it. I'd like to shift the focus back to the companies and due diligencing them. When you look at these product-led companies and are looking for, okay, so now it ticks with you. What are you looking for specifically? Uh, are there certain metrics that you'd say, I swear to this one <laughs> for this stage? Well, uh, and definitely there are some metrics that I look more than others, but I'm a very product-centric investor. So I like to find founders who are obsessed with products, obsessed with user experience. And that comes with engagement metrics. So engagement metrics, meaning how much your customers are using your product. How are you measuring the value? How do you know they are happy? Founders who know the responses are, are measuring all these KPIs are basically my target and the ones that bring me to that uh, position where I want to invest in the company much, much faster. Obviously, when you are a SaaS investor, there are some metrics that are the typical SaaS metrics that need to be there that are more related to the unit economics on the, on the CAC payback and so on. But I will say, in my case, I go really, really deep on understanding engagement metrics. And obviously, uh, you mentioned it before from my previous interview, churn, no chance is love. So uh, I think that's probably the one I would say I look at a lot because when we move to smaller customers, we really can suffer from churn. And that is important to track. Is there a danger of when you're working with product centric people that they really are in love with their product? They sleep and they eat and they're always kind of thinking about it. Is there a risk of when they're trying to go enterprise that that actually hinders the commercial relation there because it's so much about the product, the product, the product that there's no kind of commercial close there? And if it is a challenge, how do you as an investor deal with that? That's a very good question because we've seen it in some cases. I do test those founders too in their ability to think business and commercial and not feeling basically worried about putting a product in front of the customers, which is not, in fact, perfect. I do test them on that a lot. And I do test them on their next hires. That in many cases, we need to really help them hire those commercial people. Because if you think of somebody who is very product technical person, so how can they in even interview and know what are the best characteristics of somebody who's going to be doing marketing? How do you know those, right? So we help them a lot with talent, through the interviews, through looking at the characteristics and so on. Because in some cases, you just don't know it. But it is important to know and to be aware that you don't know it and you will be hiring very early to fill this gap. To the people out there being inspired by the product-led growth-centric model and see that, okay, so there's definitely things that we should think about adapting here. What would you say are the main takeaways and how far far down the line as a non-product-led growth company? Can you realize that this is actually the way we want to go and then reverse engineer it or build it into your uh, existing product? I do think that if you are thinking of pursuing or following a product-led growth strategy, you need to start doing that from day one. This is not something that you change from today to tomorrow and hey now we think next week we can start with the product-led growth until today we had 25 people selling but 
from tomorrow onwards, we are going to do product-led growth because obviously, what do you do with these 25 people, right? And they are strategies that you can use if that enterprise or mid-market is not working as well as you thought. There are ways in which you can involve those account executives and salespeople in building a much more product-led go-to-market strategy, right? But it is super complex, it is very, very complex. So you need to be thinking of that from the start because everyone within the company is incentivized through product-related metrics and everyone is responsible for those. And so that means that if you haven't hired people who are on that mindset, you are not going to be able to change it next week. Yeah, and uh, and I guess it's both, it's both mindset and also skill set. Uh, Correct. Sales 100%. Yeah. 100%. And that's why I was saying that some companies that have been successful throughout the process are very good examples. And I think companies that today are trying to build product-led growth and they don't have those capabilities, they should definitely be looking to bring advisors who have built those companies. You don't need to bring them full-time because maybe you can't even pay them, but bring them as an advisor and let them help you throughout the process. And, and it's the best definitely to go forward. Yeah, so you just brought a topic up that is very close to David's in my heart, which is bringing on advisors. I just love to hear just what are your thoughts on how do you do that? What's important to remember both as a founder, but also as a VC looking at startups engaging with advisors? Advisors, I think the advisors that I'm talking about the advisors that are experienced, have seen the movie before, are operators 99.9% of the times. I would say those are the advisors. I know I'm not really sure if you are referring to the advisors who help companies fundraise, which are some advisors out there, and they they come Let's to talk us about and them as well. <laughs> ah, okay. I thought you were you were talking about those, but um, they are not our best friends, I would say. Because I like founders to approach me and to be able to sell to me without the need of going to someone who needs to sell. Because if they are not able to convince me themselves to put money in their company, then how can they convince a customer to buy the product? How can they convince another employee to join their company? They need to sell their company themselves. So I I don't believe in those advisors. I do believe in the advisors who are operational and can help founders. And I do believe in mentors for everyone, in fact, in, in every sector. I'm a big believer of advisors and mentors uh, in that sense. And then what I actually wanted to hear also was, what do you say when they engage these advisors? What kind of terms should they do it on? Is it good just to have them loosely connected and base it on trust? Or should you quickly get them committed? Or what's your perspective on that? I think the word quickly, it is definitely, there is no time to waste. But at the same time, you need to make sure before you get to a much more formal engagement that in fact you like them and you like their style. They are valuable for you because you really need to feel comfortable taking the phone at any point of time and calling these people. So I think, yeah, you need to move forward, telling them or, or basically proposing to them a much more formal connection or advisory role. And that can be paid options or a mix of both. I'm keen of doing either a mix of both or options that vest over time, right? Many of those advisors, if they are working for another company, that amount of money, it's unnecessary for them. It's not what drives them. 
Um, but in some cases, there are some advisors who only do that. And I'm not saying they are bad. I say they were successful building, for whatever reason, a company from one to 10 million, and they are now helping every company, which is in that sector, building building their one to 10 million revenue. And that is what they do for a living. So these people are expected to be paid a little bit and get a little bit of options. But either way, I think it's very, very valuable and help companies without assuming the risk of hiring somebody full-time before, and as I mentioned in that SaaS panel, before there is a product market fit. Because in some cases, companies end up hiring a lot of salespeople before there is that product market fit. And the reality is that if you bring in an advisor who can really help you close those contracts, you can realize if you are ready to sell those contracts at a scale. And so if you can do it with an advisor, then bring somebody on board, specifically in the enterprise sales. Very cool, Lichasso. We are running out of time. <laughs> we had some more questions, but we'll keep them for the second time we invite you. We always end our interviews with a quick fire round where we ask you a quick, quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Um, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are. What would you personally like to change about VC in Europe? So I would say uh, probably becoming more operational. So having more operational partners within the venture teams. We do have an operational partner at Notion, and he has been a game changer for our companies. Andy Lieber has basically been at six ipo companies, and, and he knows how high growth looks like and that's what it's in his mind and that's what he brings to the companies it's absolutely fantastic to see how the companies react to it to it and, and, and improve it's just the second question and we already know half of the answer so let's focus on the other half which is of the most common SaaS metrics which ones do you love so we know engagement metrics right but which ones do you hate so um yeah engagement metrics are the ones i love i hate charm <laughs> I hate charm. I don't want to see any charm. <laughs> Third question. What, uh, what do you strongly believe in that most people around you don't? I can't say if they believe it or not. I do believe that the European venture ecosystem will be at the US level in terms of amount of money invested and number of unicorns and growth and talent critical mass of talent. I know there is incredible talent in Europe, but maybe the critical mass of talent and so on is going to be at US level very soon. And I truly believe that is going to be the case. I hope that's more of a premonition than a belief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we too. <laughs> Finally, what can we expect in the future from Notion and obviously from Ichaso? For sure. Definitely many more investments into cloud. And I say that because Notion traditionally has been much more of SaaS, but cloud is a more of a developer-first approach, a bottom-up approach, open source infrastructure, and obviously product-led growth. And I am the one who is leading many of those investments within the team, and we are very much looking forward to doing more of those. Chiazza, we really appreciated this conversation. It's been awesome to deep dive with you on product-led growth today. Thank you so much, and we're looking forward to our next opportunity to chat with you again. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, David and Andreas. It has been a great pleasure. This was our interview with Ichasa Del Palacio, partner of Notion Capital. If you'd like to see more from Ichasa, do follow her on LinkedIn. We thank you for listening to the European VC, the go-to place for insights into European VC. 
visit theeuropeanvc.com to hear more from us. And if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us. We love hearing from you. And remember, we're always there for you.